You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 12 through chapter 2, verse 4. O Lord, how long shall I cry for your help? and you will not hear, verse 12. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury, his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we are thankful for your word. Even in difficult times and with difficult texts, We are thankful that you have made yourself known to us, and so now, Lord, we do pray that you would draw, convict, give life, and fill us through this feast on your word together. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Hey! All right, yeah. Wait for it. There we go. It's good to see you all tonight. Uh... We had a really nice uh, and chillaxed weekend around our house, staying inside, and I hate to say this, but staying away from you. <laughs> so weird. Uh, trying to stay uh, isolated from one another. It's good to be with you here this evening, though. We spent uh, Friday night, my boys and I, with uh, one fast-forwardable scene watching Monty Python and the Holy Grail. That was the first time they've ever gone on that quest together. Marcy was happy to recuse herself. Uh, from that and give us a boys' evening. Uh, And all weekend long now, my children have just been running around the house yelling knee at one another. And uh, what sad times are these when passing ruffians can say knee without or at will to old ladies. There is a pestilence on the land and nothing is sacred. Uh, That made no sense to any of you except for like J.J. Johnson, who's at home, and I'm sure like applauding that. Uh, Anyway, it's good to be back. Uh, with uh, you all here on Sundays to deliver to you a needed word from the Lord. 
I needed word from the Lord for us tonight in this second sermon on this little book of Habakkuk. Uh, I'm thankful for Chris Primersberger's introduction to this book last week. He certainly set the table well for uh, the rest of the book and gave it some great context. One thing before we get right into this, though, uh, is what I, w- I want to consider before we go any further is just what are the prophets? I mean, it's weird, right? If you ever open a book of the prophets, they can be confusing, it can be disorienting. What in the world am I reading? Especially if you enter into reading the prophets, thinking about a prophet in the way that we usually say or speak of someone who we might think of as a prophet. Like, who do we describe as a prophet? Uh, Someone usually who predicts or understands the future, Uh, like with machine learning and advanced algorithms these days, it certainly seems like there is a model or a forecast for everything in the world. From like the amount of uh, COVID test positives that we're going to receive this week or this month, or the amount of deaths that we should expect to follow from like next year's stock market to next November's presidential election to like even things as mundane and trivial as like in the middle of a football game, like who is more likely to win or at the beginning of a baseball season, who is, or how many wins can you expect your favorite team to have? Of course, that's not to say that these models can't be and are often wrong, but that's why it's especially helpful when you find someone who is able to predict something well. It's very difficult to see the future. We call these people a prophet sometimes, not, not just a forecaster or something like that. But this isn't really what we're talking about when we are talking about Israel's prophets. There are sometimes some elements of some prophet seeing things and explaining things of the future to the present day. Usually, though, these things that are going to be coming in the future, when if or when Israel does not respond or repent out of their current disobedience, but this is usually what is more at the heart of what the prophets are actually getting at. Israel's or the southern nation of Judah's disobedience. They are calling the people back to the terms of their covenant that they made with God. This is why some scholars often call the prophets as God's covenant lawyers. They are more of of lawyers, as mediators, as calling uh, the people to respond and hold to this covenant, not necessarily like weathermen who are just going to tell you what's going to happen tomorrow or next month. And if their calls for repentance then go ignored, then yes, there are future events of destruction and doom. And so here we find Habakkuk. Habakkuk looks around and his people are just like all over the place spiritually. After a couple of years of revival under the good King Josiah, things have deteriorated to even worse than they were before. In verses 2 through 4 of chapter 1, Habakkuk looks around and all he sees is iniquity, destruction, violence, strife, contention, wickedness, injustice. This is all he sees around him. So he's crying out to God in lament and seemingly asking God to once again bring new revival amongst his generation. So Habakkuk's first complaint, we might say, is just, there is just so much evil in the land. This is what he's essentially saying to God. And God's first response to that is, I know. So I'll deal with this evil with the more evil Babylon. And then, which gets us to Habakkuk's second complaint that you just heard Ben read from in the second half of chapter one, which is basically just, wait, what? (laughs) Like, yes, you, you heard me right. There is much evil in and amongst us as a people to which God says, yeah, I know. I'm gonna, I'm gonna judge it with, judge that evil with even more evil. And 
Habakkuk is just seemingly saying, this is not at all the answer that I was expecting or hoping for or even wanting. So the question for Habakkuk that he's asking and the question for us today is, does God, just actually, does, does God actually care about injustice in such a way that he doesn't just come and just smash it like Zeus would with lightning or something? He sees injustice and he'll just use whatever he can to just smash this injustice. Or will there ever actually be a world of peace? Will there be a world of justice, of people living justly with one another and justly before God and living in flourishing peace with one another and with God? Will God's people ever be transformed to love God and love the world in the way that he intended for them? So tonight we're going to see two responses from Habakkuk, followed then by another reply from God. We're going to see this sermon considered in three headings. The first two uh, responses from Habakkuk of a confused consideration and then a defiant faith, followed then by another second response from God, which is a certain response. So a confused consideration. Habakkuk's mind is swimming. His perspective is swirling. He has asked God to act against the wickedness of his people, And now he doesn't understand the way that God tells him he's going to act. I mean, he knows that Judah is wicked. There's no bones about it. But Babylon? Like, really? Last week, Chris said that the United States is not Israel. And that is definitely true. We are not a nation that God has made a special covenant with. But seriously, it'd be like if we were watching the news and seeing so much wickedness, so much injustice, so much sin in the world, and God says, yes, okay, I'm going to finally do something about it. I'm going to judge this uh, American sin and wickedness with ISIS, or something like that. We'd be like, wait, what? That is, that is worse than what we're currently experiencing. So Habakkuk slows down and thinks, thinking through theological categories, thinking through the character of God, and he begins to lament. He's not recklessly complaining about God. He is pointedly, and as we'll see in faith, complaining to God. We won't rehash all of our thoughts from uh, the June 15th sermon from Psalm 6, if you want to go find that on the website or on the podcast. But the difference between faithful and faithless complaint to God is the difference between perhaps talking uh, to someone else. Like, can you believe what's happening? Like, I just don't understand why God is doing this, why God is allowing this, compared to Now the object of our prayer being God, of why are you allowing this to God? Not complaining about God, but complaining to God in faith. God is the object of prayer and lament, of crying out to because because his people who are praying actually expect an answer. And it is through that lament that God turns these pleadings then into praise, into greater and deepened trust in his promises. So Habakkuk begins to pray considering the character of God. We'll swing back around in greater depth in just a second, but he's essentially saying, God, I know, I know that you are holy and good. So how in the world are you going to use someone, a people who are more wicked to judge the less wicked? This doesn't seem to fit with your holy character. Maybe in his and our limited understanding, it might feel like if like I went to my kid's school and picked up the, neighbor, the school bully from the playground and brought the school bully home to like give one of my boys a spanking or something. Like what? That doesn't make any sense. My kids, I think, would rightfully feel indignant about that. Like 
I can understand receiving discipline from you, Dad, but really? Like O'Doyle Rules guy or something? Like who just gives me a spanking and then a wedgie and a wet willy on the way out or something? It doesn't seem to make any sense. That would indeed be ridiculous. But like every other human in history, beginning with Adam and then shifting the blame away from ourselves, blaming our sin like Adam did on Eve, like Eve did with the serpent, Habakkuk's objection seems to be, well, I know we are walking around in sin and injustice and in wickedness, but come on, God, we're not as bad as they are. But like we thought through two weeks ago in James 2, a BB gun or a bowling ball alike will equally break the glass window of the law. Rebellion is rebellion is rebellion is rebellion. And yet, it is true that the consequences of sin may be greater with greater levels of wickedness. Personally, interpersonally, societally, And so Habakkuk thinks about humanity that God has created as like the fish in the sea. They are for sure wicked fish. But then here comes Babylon as a commercial fisherman. Verse 14, he says, You, God, you make mankind like the fish of the sea and like crawling things that have no ruler. But then he, Babylon, verse 15, he brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them, he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? Habakkuk does not understand these wicked fishermen, right, who are coming and just reaping and gathering all the people around them and then just consuming them. Babylon's reputation has grown and it has reached Jerusalem. They are the bully on the block, and Habakkuk knows that they are soon to sweep across the land like fire with rape and pillage to kill and to torture and to just utterly destroy. Then, At the end, maybe pluck out a few of the leftovers to Babylonize the rest of the culture. Like think of Daniel or Shadrach or Meshach and Abednego in the book of Daniel and what's coming for them. Just the few leftover stragglers that the Babylonians would allow to live, but what that might mean for life amongst them. There's just so much uncertainty, so much confusion about why in the world God would allow even raise up such wickedness to use. So Habakkuk is asking, how long, O Lord? When will you act against injustice? When will this earth stop in its rebellion and that all nations might finally experience the peace of your good and your holy presence, that there might be love and peace and right worship? Again, though, he is directing his questions, even his questions of confusion, to God instead of complaining about God. His lament indicates and then turns to a resolute, committed, and then despite the crumbling circumstances of the world around him, it now turns from a confused consideration to a defiant faith. Secondly, in his wonderful reflections about Habakkuk, Martin Lloyd-Jones, 50 or 60 years ago, made four observations about Habakkuk's response to injustice, about uncertainty and confusion. Lloyd-Jones says there are four steps when we encounter such confusion. 
And the first step is to stop and to think. Rather than being quick to speak, quick to hear what we want to hear, quick to fire off our own thoughts and emotions on social media, instead, the book of James commends us to be quick to listen, slow to speak. Habakkuk is offering confused but thoughtful reflections about God and about the world. He isn't just firing from the hip. Lloyd-Jones says, when you start to think, you must not begin with your immediate problem. Begin further back. Another commentator says that this process is like walking down the sidewalk uh, the beginning of the morning after a wet and sleeting night. Perhaps it is frozen and there are patches and bits of ice all around the sidewalk. Now, knowing that there are icy patches ahead and that one misstep might mean a torn ACL or a concussion or something, you walk with attentive eyes. You walk with carefully deliberate steps. And so Habakkuk is doing the same thing here, walking with carefulness, confusion, but with carefulness after thought and reflection. Second, Lloyd-Jones says, remember or restate basic truths. When God told Habakkuk that he was raising up the Babylonians to judge the sin of Judah, Habakkuk is confused. And it could be tempting to read his response as some sort of like faithless form of bargaining. But that's not what he does. In verse 12, he says, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. Compared to Babylon, who, in verse 11, whose God is their strength, that might makes right, like as long as you can, you should. This is Babylon's MO. Israel's God is the creator and the eternal God of the universe who has no beginning nor end. He is holy and always does what is right and what is good and what is just. Babylon, even in their what seems to be consuming, never-ending power, will one day fade and will one day disappear, and they did. And so no matter how big or unending the problem may be, a virus, an economic depression, like what in the world are we about to do with school reopening, a coming presidential election and a nation at each other's throats, a difficult medical diagnosis that you receive, a difficult relationship that you're enduring that seems to just never get better or will never end, a society enduring and reaping the consequences of centuries of racism and of injustice, No matter how big, no matter how unending any of these problems may seem to be, they are not eternal. But our God, who rules from the heavens, is. And that's not like a trite spiritual platitude. It is a truth that must be repeated, must be restated. Even our own lives will come and go, but God will not which is what Habakkuk kind of confusingly is saying at the end of verse 12. He says, we will not die. He's not just speaking into existence something that he hopes to be true. He's not like saying, God, you are eternal and you are holy, so my car will not break down. Uh, I will not get COVID-19, no matter how recklessly I live. Just because you are good and eternal, you will keep me from any difficulty. Now, even in the next verse, Habakkuk acknowledges that God has ordained Babylon for their judgment, to establish them for reproof. Rather, Habakkuk is restating and then banking on the promises that God made to Abraham, that God will use this people as like a nozzle on the end of a water hose to 
water and bless the entire world. That though there may be much death, there will not be total death. There will always be a remnant, a blessing, and blessing will come. His promises will endure because God will endure. So Habakkuk is walking carefully. He's walking deliberately. He's picking out sure footing, knowing that amongst so much uncertainty, there are dozens and dozens and dozens of theological missteps out there. And then he is repeating what he knows to be true. Do not forget in the darkness what you know to be true in the light. And then third, apply these truths to the problem. If Habakkuk recognizes that this coming judgment on Judah is actually for their reproof, for their ultimate good, it's not just punishment, but it is corrective discipline, even if many of them do come to their end, come to death, then none of this is actually out of control. The Babylonians, and viruses, and politicians, and slowing paychecks, and racist actions, and inequitable policies, and anything else that is difficult and frustrating, they are all on a leash. And the outcome of all of it, for those who are in Christ Jesus, is actually for my good. Because God loves me. Not in such a way that like through all this and on the other side of all of this difficulty, there's like this silver lining in which uh, maybe I ended up getting more things out of the things that I lost in the difficulty or something. No, but the, the, for those whom God is shaping and forming, confusion, difficulty, loss, all of these are the contexts in which we are most moldable, most shapeable. So the question for us to always be considering or asking is, what is this story? What is the story that I am presently living in? What is the point of this story? If the point of the story and the point of my existence is to like minimize as much difficulty, as much pain and struggle in my life, and maximize the level of happiness and good experiences that I get to have, then 2020 this year makes no sense in the context of that story, does it? Like, can 2020 just leave so that we can, like, get back to normal? But if the point of this story isn't necessarily my own personal avoidance of difficulty, but it's rather this story, this story is a road of self-denial, a road of becoming more and more like Jesus and loving others more than myself, of having my grip loosened on this world, and then fixed more tightly on Christ himself, then okay, I would have never prayed for 2020. Would have never have hoped for many of the circumstances of this year. But thank God for 2020. Help me not to waste it, oh God. Because in my flesh, where 2020 exists for maximal happiness and minimal difficulty, I want 2020 to be gone immediately. But sometimes these problems and these difficulties can, can become so overwhelming that it seems too much to be of any good. The ice has surrounded you and it feels like there is no ground to safely stand on, no solid patches to navigate through. So forth, if still in doubt, commit the problem to God in faith. What if, after all of the work that you have done in steps one through three, you're just as confused and just as, just 
as without answers as you were before you started. And this is where Habakkuk finds himself at the beginning of chapter 2. He's bewildered. He is exasperated. And so in verse 1, Habakkuk says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Habakkuk gets away from the problems on the ground, and then he just parks himself up on a high place to expectantly watch in faith for God's action. He doesn't know how. He doesn't know what God is going to do, and any and every option seems terrible. It feels impossible. But doggone it, he's just going to sit and wait. Like, have you seen that gif of, like, this guy who, like, he's like a hardcore biker guy, and he looks like he's, like, strolling up to a kid's uh, soccer game or something. He's got a camping chair in one hand. Have you ever seen this? It's great. And he, like, pops it open with one hand and then just, like, parks himself down in this camping chair. He's, like, defiant in his sitting down. Uh, and I, this is how I imagine Habakkuk. He, like, walks up to this watchtower with a camping chair and just, like, pops it open and just sits down, and he's just going to wait and watch for what God is going to do. Not defiance, like defiance against God. Well, I I don't like any of these options, so I'm just going to sit here and wait for you to do something that I do want you to do. But no, defiance against the circumstances of the world. That against everything that would suggest otherwise, against it all, the context of the surrounding world of suffering and of impending loss, Habakkuk seems to just park himself down on that camping chair and say, though my flesh and my heart may fail, you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And so I will sit and watch and wait. And the way that God answers may not be what we would have wanted. And he may not answer for a few decades or even in my lifetime. But Habakkuk, he ain't moving on. He's not giving up in his belief in the promises of God until he sees God's, an- God's answer. He- he's, like, he's like Jacob wrestling with the angel of the Lord. I will not release you until you bless me. There is a sense of defiance here of saying, despite it all, I am holding on tightly. Now, in fact, God will answer with the coming of Babylon. And unlike Daniel or Isaiah, We never hear from Habakkuk again after this book. And so presumably, Habakkuk himself does not come out of this alive when Babylon comes and destroys Jerusalem. And yet, the answers, though he may not have asked for or wanted for it, these are the answers that God gives. And he will stand and wait for God to answer. Though my flesh and my heart may fail, God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And so in light of all of this, and before sending the Babylonians, God does respond. And he doesn't just say to Habakkuk, like Jack Nicholson or something on the stand, of like, you want answers? I'll give you answers, Habakkuk. Like, I'll just send in the Babylonians and destroy everything. Sorry, I can't do Jack Nicholson. But you want answers? Like, fine. I'll give you a straight and honest and to-the-point answer and destruction is coming. But God does not do this. He's patient, and he's kind. He speaks a certain response. Verse 2 of chapter 2, the Lord answered me. 
He said, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. So first he tells Habakkuk to write all this down. Everything that's happened before and everything that's about to come that I'm about to speak to you, Habakkuk, write down all of this. This this isn't just for your inner peace. God speaks through these prophets so that the wider community of God in the present day and then ongoing into today in Albuquerque might hear and believe. And Babylon is indeed coming. It seems to, if if you're reading verse 3, it seems to be like a a, a verse of hope or something, but it's actually a, a, a verse of impending judgment. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. And what God is saying is, this is my answer to you. Babylon, it is coming. It will not delay. But then, it's like Habakkuk is like sitting on a swivel stool, and God grabs his shoulders and turns him from Judah, and he points his gaze toward Babylon. Or maybe better yet, Habakkuk up on the watch post in the tower can see the darkness over the horizon like the gathering fires of Mordor that are coming or something. And then God turns the the little stick on the mini blinds, and he opens the blinds so that Habakkuk might see He might see what's in the Babylonians' hearts, what's coming for them, and the blinds of heaven are open to show what God will do and how he will respond and what he thinks about all of this. That'll be mostly next week. And just a heads up, perhaps if you go home this week and you read through chapter 2 and or expect to come next Sunday excited to hear about all the judgment that God is going to bring and enact upon all of the wicked people out there, we'll read and prepare to be confronted with the wickedness that still lingers in here. But to wrap things up tonight, we're going to get a small taste of that in verse 4. But verse 4 is also the central argument of the book, and perhaps even the central argument of the entire Bible, where God is telling Habakkuk that indeed his answer, the Babylonians are coming, it will come, and behold, verse 4, his soul, Babylon's, is puffed up, It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. The his here, his soul, is Babylon, that commercial fisherman that is coming to just wipe out all of the fish in the sea. A commercial fisherman that worships his ingenuity and his strength and his power. He worships his self. His soul is puffed up. It is not upright. He does whatever he thinks is right. What brings the most power, most comfort, the most entertainment, the most security, if might makes right, if I can, I should, this is Babylon. But God says, the righteous, on the other hand, shall live by his faith. This verse is so important to the scope of, this, of the entire Bible that Paul quotes it twice, Romans 1.17 and Galatians 3.11 that you heard earlier in the service. The author of the letter to the Hebrews quotes it in Hebrews 10.38. This is a monumentally important verse in the full scope of the biblical story. And there's been some debate about what it's actually saying and what it actually means. It's just three words in Hebrew, and the original Hebrew might be better translated as faithfulness rather than faith, as in the righteous shall live by his faithfulness. Now, does that mean that the way that Martin Luther understood Paul's usage of this verse in Romans 1 now means that like the entire Protestant Reformation is up in the air? 
that of grace alone through faith alone, that if we are actually the righteous ones living by faithfulness, seems to imply some action on our part and not necessarily faith in the action that God has done on our behalf. Does that mean, is that, is that what's going on here? Well, no. Faithfulness in Hebrew can actually mean steady trust, and then it goes right together with action. So think about it. The one who actually trusts in God will live faithfully to God because of his faith in God's promises, which is exactly what Paul is saying about Abraham in Galatians 3. What James is saying about faith, that faith without works is actually not faith. Or, have, or as some have said, faith is what faith does. Faith is what faith does. Now, what in the world would live by that Habakkuk, well, that God says to Habakkuk, would mean if it weren't actually action played out in our lives? What would it mean to live by faith if there was no action responding to that? Living by faith is an action, is an activity. We are not saved by faith, as if faith were the thing that saves. We are saved by God through faith. By turning our attention and our faith in the self and believing by faith that Christ is all. And that Christ is better than all the things in my flesh that I would want. Reveling and enjoying the love of God the Father and then living into that reality. Living by faith. That his kingdom of righteousness and justice is better than what I would want on my own. That of if I can, I should. If I feel or want something, I just should do it. That for every no that Jesus gives to his people in love, he gives a thousand better yeses. That is a promise and a reality that must be trusted by, or trusted in by faith. That despite dizzying and unrelenting circumstances that might suggest that God is not sovereign, that God is not wise, that God is not loving, that by faith to trust that his love for you is actually not uncertain. That no, the cross of Christ and his empty tomb is the guarantee of his love, is the guarantee of his care. That justice will be met and one day will be finally and fully given. Without the cross of Christ for us to look back toward, without the coming love and justice for Habakkuk at the cross to look toward, the world around us would, and and then our own behavior in this world would just be like one giant flower petal pulling exercise. That of he loves me or he loves me not. Of this day, it certainly feels and looks like he loves me, but tomorrow, man, the circumstances of that day just certainly might indicate that he doesn't love me. But the cross of Christ is the guarantee. The cross of Christ is the guarantee of his love, of his wisdom, and of his justice. And so Habakkuk comes to us as a sharp and distinct call of the reality that there are two and only two ways to live. By what we immediately desire, by what we can immediately see, and then using all of that to interpret reality, or in patient humility to walk by faith. That in action, in response, in word and in deed, to believe that Jesus is really risen, 
that he is actually reigning, that he loved me and gave himself for me. Like you realize that the song we sang or hummed earlier in the service of he will hold me fast, that is a defiant song of faith. That despite my faithlessness, despite my inability to live in obedience, despite the suffering and loss that I have experienced this week, when I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. For I know my Savior loves me so. He will hold me fast. And then, because of that defiant faith, now daily living by the Spirit, that there are two ways by faith. Faith in bigger or better, Faith in whatever I see, I take, whatever I want, I continue to want, or in living by faith in what I can't see, in the love and the justice of God, even with answers that I maybe don't even necessarily want or like. But trusting God all the more. I share this from one of my seminary professors at least once a year, uh, but here it is again. Christian, Christ Church, the gates of hell are torn down. Death is ripped apart. The right man is at the helm of the cosmos, and you're worried about what again? 2020 is dizzying, and it is confusing, and there is so much wickedness, so much injustice, so much left lingering still in here and in here, and yet all of that is true. The right man is at the helm of the cosmos. He has conquered death. He has conquered sin. And he will hold us fast. But this requires, requires a defiant, just camping chair, popping, sitting down, wait, waiting and watching. And then in response, walking forward in faith in what Christ has done for us individually and together as a church. There is much to come and to cut and to even perhaps even punch us in the gut with next week through the rest of Habakkuk 2. So Read through that this week, and then don't, don't stop there. This week, continue on. Read two and three a few more times. There's so much goodness coming. But let's pray that God would continue to do a good work in us through this short book. Our Father, we confess and admit our tendency toward faithlessness. We confess our tendency to look around at the world and see and believe that you are not good, that you are not there, that you are not just, that you are not wise, that you do not love us. Father, we want to believe. Help our unbelief. Help us to bank our lives, bank our existence, bank our eternity on the things that we cannot see, on the reality of the empty cross and the empty tomb and the filled throne of our risen Lord Jesus, the Lamb of God who is slain on our behalf and who now reigns and rules forever. Help us to trust and to live even more in this reality. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.